what we do in small pharma is very much like movie making in a way because you know you had the story that you want to flesh out and you bring together the team that you need for the movie. That's Doug Mannion, Chief Executive Officer at Clio Pharmaceuticals. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Doug. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. This morning I'm with Doug Mannion, CEO of Clio Pharmaceuticals. Doug, how'd you find yourself here at Clio? First, thanks for having me. It's it's great to be here. Uh, I joined Clio as CEO in in uh, May of 2017. I had uh, been in uh, big pharma with three different companies for 20 or so years, and just kind of thought at this stage of my life it would be fun to do something much more entrepreneurial. Um, you know, for me to be much closer to the action than I was as a as a, a senior person in a large pharmaceutical company. And I met with the leadership of, uh, of Clio, and I thought that the science was incredibly intriguing. I thought the potential uh, for us really making a dent in uh, improving the lives of patients with cancer was real, and I just couldn't wait to join. So I asked a similar question for a couple of folks I've spoken with, and one of the answers I got was, after I, he said, after I chose, I thought, why didn't I do this before? <laughs> Did that thought occur to you? I did not really. I didn't really do that. I, I don't think I was ready. I think that uh, I really had to kind of grow and mature as a leader and, a, and as a manager. And I learned a lot from a, from other people uh, in large pharma. And I think it was just the perfect time, to be honest with you. And uh, you, the thing about biotech is it's not for the faint of heart, right? So um, if you're going to dive into those waters, you really have to be uh, ready to thrive in those waters. And although I probably could have done it earlier, I'm not one to kind of second guess my decision making. This was exactly the right thing to do at exactly the right time for me. And it's working out really well. Early in your career, was this like a goal or is this just sort of something that was the right thing at the right time as far as being a CEO and leader? So I had thought starting my career in, in pharma that by the time I got to my mid-50s, if I had done well, so if I had done well in terms of most importantly uh, help to bring patients uh, medicines that were going to improve their lives, uh, and I had done well financially, personally, such that I could take a little bit more risk on that front, that I would want to take a bit of a flyer and do something much more innovative. I wasn't sure it was going to necessarily be CEO of a, of a biotech. It might have been go back and go back to teaching, which I love to do. I may want to, you know, I might have wanted to start to write. I may still want to start to write. Uh, I certainly uh, do want to become much more involved in in venture capitalism. I think that that's an exciting thing. I'm I'm kind of on the receiving end of venture capitalism. I thought maybe I might be on the uh, actually within the venture capitalist community. Uh, that may come yet. You just never know. I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. Me too, Doug. <laughs> Okay, so what were you hoping to achieve here at Clio that couldn't you couldn't do at another company? You must have had lots of opportunities to go lots of different places. What what was the draw here? So always the draw is: Are you actually going to have impact on on the uh, on helping people with the serious disease? Uh, I went into the drug industry specifically because of a love of of uh, HIV/AIDS and wanting to really um, make a have a macroscopic impact on that disease, and I really feel that I did, which is awesome. And so the overarching reason to be in cancer is that I want to have a similar impact in cancer as I had in HIV. And cancer is a much bigger problem yet. Why Clio in, in particular is I love the fact that Clio is kind of going against the current. And the current is ever more complicated bioengineered molecules that, that do hold out some promise, but they also bring up a whole lot of complications. Uh, and there's no certainty that they're necessarily going to work better. What I love about you know, David Spiegel's vision at Yale that is now the cornerstone of what we're doing at Clio is that small is beautiful and simpler is better. 
And if you can actually get, for instance, um, the immune system to um, double down in terms of killing tumor cells by but doing it with synthetic simpler molecules uh, and uh, and potentially with uh, with better mechanisms of action, it just makes sense to me. And as a, a former engineer, because I actually trained as an engineer before I was a doctor, uh, I was a big fan of Occam's razor, which is, I mean, if you if there's a simpler solution, you should probably follow it. And we're actually coming up with uh, remarkably simple solutions to to major problems, and it just it excites me. When I was, as far as I can remember anyway, when I was eight or nine, I really wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be a pitcher. You're equivalent of that story. When you were, as you can remember, when you were that age, what did you think you were going to be in? So it's hard for me to remember all the way back to then, to be honest with you. But I, th- I think I wanted to be a fireman, and I don't really know why I wanted to be a fireman because I never saw a fire, and I didn't know any firemen. But when you're a kid, you know, it, you want to be an astronaut or you want to be a fireman or you want to be um, a policeman. Uh, I think it's more just like these phenotypes that, uh, that you see on TV. Uh, I do know that later when I was in my teens, I went to a school where uh, a lot of my classmates were sons and daughters of doctors, and a lot of them were kind of uh, destined to become doctors themselves. And they, uh, and I, I actually felt sorry for them. I felt like they were uh, not really following their own muses, that there was very much kind of coming down from above, that that, that was the expectation. And they didn't seem to be you know, particularly happy about their choice. And they seemed to be very over-focused on, um, on what you would need to do to get into med school. And they weren't living their lives as, as, as fully as they should have. So I said, well, I definitely don't want to do that. Uh, so I actually became an engineer and was doing um, water supply and sanitation work uh, for non-governmental organizations, but, but uh, applied to sub-Saharan Africa. And this was in the early 80s. So this was 79, 80, 81, when Slim's disease, which turned out to be HIV disease, was rearing its ugly head in Africa. And of course, the AIDS epidemic was uh, kind of hit the... the uh, the airwaves in the United States in 81 and by 82 even though I wasn't finished my engineering training yet I decided I was going to bite the bullet and actually do all of my medical prerequisites on top of my full load of engineering courses to start med school in uh, in 1983 and a mere 14 years later I popped out um, <laughs> very very well trained uh, and and ready for for a career, which uh, surprisingly I thought was going to be in academia, and then I was advised by my mentor at Harvard that in fact I should consider going into the pharmaceutical industry, and it's worked out really well for me. I joke with people that the uh, I use my engineering degree every day because engineering is all around process management, linear logic, systems thinking. It's an unbelievably good uh, training for your brain, uh, and in what I now do is it's a very very useful training. Uh, I joke with people that the only part of my medical training I use every day is my psychiatric training because I have to deal with human beings all the time. When you're speaking with someone who's intelligent but is outside your field, maybe you've met them on vacation or something like that, and they say, you know, what do you do for a living? I'm interested in the, you know, what do you actually, what do you tell me actually do each day part of it? Let's Mm -hmm. start with that. I mean, when somebody says, what's a CEO for a biopharma do? What do you say? Mm -hmm. Um, so I say that I am um, a leader of a team of really smart people that translate awesome science into improving and extending the lives of patients with cancer. Uh, and what that translates to, when you come in as a CEO for a, a biotech, a small biotech like ours, I mean, we have less than 20 employees. We've been around for uh, only about three years. Um, you basically come in with your sleeves already rolled up 
and uh, you do a lot of stuff. Uh, the you know, obviously we have an R and D division. We have we have other folks as well. A lot of my time is spent partnering with my CSO Luca Rostelli in terms of making sure that we have the most robust um, R and D strategy and plan as possible. But you know, you're very hands on. You see, you know, there's data coming out on a near daily basis uh, that you get to respond to, which is really really cool. Uh, you you have to kind of um, track down when you when you see a successful piece of data you got to very rapidly try to double down on this and capitalize on it and all of this long-term line of sight of course is to help patients the surrogate marker of that of course is to intrigue our uh, and to incite our investors to want to stay invested invest even more down the road so it's a it's a really kind of fun puzzle to work through to be honest with you because on one side there's all these scientific pieces that you have to Optimize and put together into a narrative, and then you also need to um, work with the people with the, the the deep pockets in terms of them seeing disproportional value in your company, and then the, the willingness to invest in you, not just in the short term but the long term. There's a director who's worked I like a lot, film director. He was asked what he does, and he paused and he said, "I answer questions." I thought, <laughs> it's probably something like what you do, right? Now, it's interesting that you, you make that illusion because what we do in small pharma is very much like movie making in a way because, you know, you had the story that you want to flesh out and you bring together the team that you need for the movie. And so, um, you know, and, and we have uh, a critical mass of internal folks that are really, really clever, but then we also are uh, culling from the best and brightest outside of the company uh, to help us. And it's actually really fun to be able to do that. When you're in a larger company, I would say every, almost everything is kind of internal and you have a lot of subdivision of labor. Um, here, we don't have that, obviously. And so if we need, for instance, to, to talk to the world's smartest person in what, any given cancer, we can just pick up the phone and, and talk to that person, which is great. If we need expertise in a certain area of drug development or, or even drug discovery, again, we can pick up the phone and do that. And then we had this very, very clever virtual team that's kind of cool to operate that's helping us uh, you know, make decisions, move things forward. So let me ask you about uh, what, what you have learned over the years about your, your management style. Did you have a, a preconception prior to becoming a CEO of how, and that's, that's obviously not just CEO stuff, but did you have a feeling of what your style would be? Did you find out it was the same or different? I'm, I'm what you call a reluctant leader. <clears throat> so the uh, I, I love for things to be well run, and I would prefer that somebody else run things well. But it's <laughs> amazing to me how often things are just not run well. And so I've kind of had to, I'm a, I'm a natural introvert, and I've had to, you know, leave the shadows on multiple occasions in my life to lead because I just thought that there was a leadership gap. And I do think that when it comes to human systems, uh, good things happen because of good leadership and bad things happen because of bad leadership, and I don't like to see bad things happen. Uh, my father was actually a, a pretty senior person in the Canadian government. I, I learned a lot watching how he leads. I also have have plagiarized aggressively off leaders in the pharma industry who've impressed me. Uh, and one who did it very early in my career when I was at a company called DuPont Merck Pharmaceuticals was a head of development by the name of Ed Bradley. I remember Ed came in, and DuPont was not in a good place at, at the time, and we were in desperate need of sound leadership uh, f from from his role, the head of development. I remember he brought together all of the people under him the day he arrived, or maybe the day after, and for his first town hall meeting, and he had a single slide. And the single slide uh, gave what he called his leadership credo. And his leadership credo was, if you want to thrive under Ed, work smart, have fun, and don't be a jerk. 
And it was so simple, and it spoke volumes. And then he described what that meant. If you're smart, uh, you put yourself uh, in the orbit of people who are smarter than you, and you learn from them. And then so my leadership style is basically a culling together of what I thought were really positive attributes of a whole bunch of great leaders. I mentioned uh, I had a mentor in, in engineering school who actually got me working uh, on, on, on stuff pertinent to Africa, and that's what got me into HIV-AIDS. And then I, um, when I was um, studying Canada to become an infectious disease doctor, I, I met someone who was brilliant, and he was the one who actually convinced me I should go to Harvard. And he actually helped to get me to go to Harvard for my postdoc. And then once at Harvard, my mentor was the one who said, suggested I go into this industry. So uh, you should always um, try to um, get into the orbit of people who are better than you. And then you should um, constantly be looking to craft, you know, to, to uh, hone your skills uh, as a leader. And that's why you were asking the question earlier about uh, when I wanted to make the move into biotech. Um, my career in industry kept increasing and increasing in terms of the, the, the scope of my, uh, of my book of work and the number of people that I was either leading through solid lines or in most of these companies are heavily matrixed. Uh, but with my last company, there, there were thousands of people who ultimately were kind of matrixed into me. Uh, and that was a great uh, experience. It was a really, really good experience. And uh, although it sounds like it would be way easier to, to manage 17 people than to manage thousands of people, uh, that is not necessarily the case because when you're managing thousands of people, you also have multiple layers of lieutenants under you. And so um, it really is more like moving, uh, like being a, a general in a, in a, in a war. You're not, uh, you know, you've got uh, colonels and lieutenants and, uh, that are beneath you and you can kind of delegate responsibility down to you, down to them. When you're in a biotech company, the buck stops with you at every level, even the most mundane detail, the buck you know, stops with you, which, uh, which is getting back to my roots, but I'm, I'm glad I had that other experience too. Doug, what's new at Clio? Well, first, uh, maybe I'll just start by saying what's Clio, <laughs> so for your listeners. Uh, so we are a company based on the, the breakthrough science of David Spiegel, who's a full professor of biochemistry and pharmacology at Yale. And David, his entire career has been of the belief that if you're really smart in terms of, of uh, chemistry, that you should be able to do with synthetic chemical molecules, what some people would call small molecules, or synthetic peptides, um, what others can only do with complicated biological drugs. And, and there's a, a lot of energy right now around um, using biologicals to activate the immune system against tumor cells. And so there's, uh, it's called immuno-oncology. There's been uh, several drugs that have been approved of late. They're getting a, an awful lot of very positive press because they are actually very good. Uh, and, but I think that there's a false belief that um, the only way that you can kind of perturbate protein-protein interactions or cell-cell uh, cell interactions is with these large biological um, uh, drugs. And, and just, you know, these are made through fermentation, not through chemical processing. So uh, it's a completely different kettle of fish. And you even have companies that are either all biological or all small molecule. And in fact, when people talk about biotech, uh, it was because the first biotech companies were biologicals, right? usually uh, looking at, at replacement enzyme therapy, but ultimately it, it resulted in monoclonal antibodies. And there's much, much more complicated things now. So Clio is basically 
the opposite of that trend. We are steadfast that you can do with small molecules what others uh, can only do with, with uh, uh, large biological molecules, uh, and that brings a whole lot of positive attributes to it. We have a lot more chemical diversity. We have shorter uh, discovery cycle times. Uh, we have significantly more tunability in terms of of binding at either end. So we, like others, have uh, our, our, our foundation of these bispecific molecules. One of it binds to the tumor cell. The other one binds to an immune activator, which could actually be an antibody in some instances, or could be directly to immune cells. But because of the fact that we have all of this chemical diversi uh, um, diversity, we can find tunophilia at either end. We also have a tunable linker in between, which we can, uh, through which we can dial in a whole bunch of attributes. So, for instance, longer half-life or improved tissue penetration in certain uh, places that harbor tumor, for instance, bone or brain or prostate. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is what, is what uh, uh, Cleo is trying to achieve. Recent news for us, we actually uh, completed a successful Series B financing round in November of 2018, so that actually um, uh, gives us sufficient uh, resources to actually um, take what had been basically platform validation work and now go to the next phase of our existence, which is to become a clinical development company. So we've begun IND enabling activities for the first uh, of uh, of um, our our putative drugs, potential drugs, we actually will beginning will be beginning IND enabling activities on probably three drugs this calendar year, and the goal would be for us to be in the clinic uh, for the first of those, ideally this year. Although I think more logically, it's going to be in the first half of of 2020. So it's incredibly exciting to to be going from a a pure research company to an R&D company, and the ultimate goal would be to be a fully vertically integrated company that's actually also selling drugs and making money uh, as a surrogate market for helping patients. When you tell that story to investors you just told to me, and then maybe afterwards you're meeting over coffee and, and someone asks some questions that validate and say, yeah, they understood the, the essential story I was telling, you feel great. When some people don't and they're, they've misunderstood it, what do people get wrong when when they hear the story, but they just don't get it. It's not sure that they don't get it. Everybody has their own biases. Everyone has their own uh, belief systems. And, you know, at the end of the day, investors, uh, drug developers, you know, strategy is all about making choices, and you make choices based on your belief system. Uh, some of the belief system that we run into is just some people believe that biologicals are just better. Uh, and and uh, there has been such a kind of a groundswell towards biologicals that, that it's kind of an easy trap to fall into. Um, so what I always tell such people is um, all that should matter to you is the effect. And the route by which you engage that effect really shouldn't matter. And so we then show them data that, in fact, through our approach, we can get um, similar, if not even better, immune activity against some tumor types vis-a-vis -vis biologicals. Um, the ones who are open-minded will say, okay, you're quite right, I really don't care. And in fact, they then start to listen about what are all the positive attributes of a small molecule approach versus a biological approach, and they're the ones with which we do, we do well. Um, the ones who, despite the fact that they see analog, analogous or even better activity, just don't want to buy into the premise, we say, well, that's fine. That's a, you, you have made a strategic choice in terms of where you want to be putting your money. It's, that's totally fine. Um, you know, just watch us. <laughs> What makes Clio different from other biopharma companies? So I mentioned already that we're taking a synthetic chemistry approach uh, to what others are doing with, uh, with large molecule biologicals. But what I didn't mention, in fact, is that, that we really do have 
uh, um, disproportional expertise in terms of innovative chemistry, and that's on a couple of different fronts. One of them is using computational chemi- chemical design, which is a, f- a fairly new uh, way to uh, actually hunt for small molecule drugs, and our head of chemistry is, is extremely well-versed in that, as is uh, David Spiegel, our scientific co-founder. And so part of our secret sauce is being disproportionately good at leveraging that technology. Uh, and then the other piece is that we are partnering with similarly clever drug discoverers using different approaches. So, for instance, uh, we're public on a uh, uh, discovery collaboration deal with a company in Japan called Peptidream. And Peptidream is uh, arguably the world's um, uh, best RNA phage display s- uh, synthetic cyclic peptide discovery engine. And I think 17 or 18 large pharma companies actually have deals with Peptidream, where Peptidream um, leverages its screening technique of, of non-natural um, uh, peptides uh, to find high affinity binders to, to, to whatever antigens they want. So we have a, um, a multi-binder deal uh, with them that was announced in July of 2017. And uh, the cycle time for them to get a hit once we direct their screening against an antigen of our choice is actually quite spectacular. So uh, the lead asset that will be going to the clinic this year or early next actually contains a peptide, a peptidic moiety that stemmed from that collaboration with Peptidrine. So um, long story short, part of our secret sauce is uh, disproportionately strong uh, uh, non-natural amino acid peptidic chemistry as well as computational chemistry. What kinds of folks make good partners to Clio? Well, we only have one partnership to date, and that's Peptidream, and they've been terrific. Uh, and what makes that relationship so good is their um, now CEO, former CSO Patrick Reed, uh, he, the, they're, although they're now a fairly large company, they're worth about $6 billion U.S. dollars on the uh, Nikkei Stock Exchange in Tokyo, but they still function like a, a biotech company. Uh, they're very, very nimble, very rapid cycle times, uh, they're not laden with a bunch of undue process, so you're not constantly kind of feeding the beast in terms of, of SOPs and the like. I mean, of course, you need to have standards in terms of how you do things, uh, but it shouldn't, you know, in, in some larger companies, those SOPs can basically uh, become, become um, speed bumps that, allow, that don't really allow you to, to, you know, to, to, to put your, you know, the pedal to the metal in terms of, of moving things forward. Nimble, high accountability, a non-unduly uh, kind of process-laden or focused is what you all ideally want to find. Now, we're open to having partnerships with pretty much any type of company. Uh, even if we were to have partnerships with a large pharma company that is very process-focused, and most of them are, there's still ways for you to actually craft things with the interface with them such that you're not going to be a victim of those. Uh, you know, in my In my last company, large pharma company. Uh, we were, I was overseeing a program in hepatitis C, uh, uh, drug discovery and development, and hepatitis C was an unbelievably kinetic space where literally on a weekly, if not daily basis, new data were coming out that was changing everyone's thinking. And within the span of less than a year, uh, people went from thinking that HCV was probably not curable at high rates uh, and certainly could not be cured without, for instance, interferon-based therapies. Uh, to realizing that it could be cured with a relatively short um, uh, exposure to you know as little as one or two drugs, so that was just a complete you know uh, uh, mindset shift in terms of how the thing. Would, so you really had to be nimble. So even within this large company, we were able to carve out a small tech, a small team that worked very very much like a biotech. They actually were given 
um, a budget, a discretionary budget they could spend. They didn't have to go back to dad all the time for like uh, their allowance. And so they were given kind of broad degrees of freedom in terms of being as innovative as possible because we knew that was the only way that they could actually compete with other like companies. And in fact, it worked out really well. So, so even within large pharma, it's feasible. So we would always try to find that kind of win-win collaboration. So if we're interfacing with them, uh, we'd, we'd move at the speed of the faster, not the slower of the two partners. When you're hiring, mm-hmm. what characteristics are you looking for? Uh, so we are hiring, and, and it's very simple. So what I look for is um, I look for very, very smart people. And uh, just like you can't, you, know, you can't teach speed, I think is one thing they say in athletics, you can't teach smart either. So people have to have a foundational uh, they have to have a good microprocessor to start with. Um, and so once you have that, though, you want to find people who can also play well in the sandbox or, or high EQ individuals. Uh, emotional quotient. Emotional uh, quotient, emotional intelligence. Okay. Um, also, you want people who are relatively minimally ego-driven, uh, which is difficult to, to do in terms of, uh, of scientists, doctors, and, and, uh, and PhDs. They tend to be, you know, uh, you know, pursuits that, that attract people with, with fairly big egos. That being said, uh, you want people who can share, with, share the glory, are more concerned about getting success than claiming success. Uh, and also people who don't mind getting their hands dirty, uh, uh, very much want to be hands-on, and most importantly, they need to be very high accountability. And uh, one of my favorite questions I ask people when, when, they're, um, when I'm interviewing them is, how do you define performance? When I ask you, like, performance, what does it mean that you have performed? And a lot of people stumble over that question. But the right answer is really simple. Performance is doing what you said you were going to do. So, and that's what's great about that is, one, you have to articulate what you're going to do, which means you're going to, you set a goal, and that has to include what, when, right? And then you have to achieve that what at the time that you said that you're going to do it. And as long as you have people who get that, you know, you a handful of such people, and you can do a, you, you can uh, move mountains. Yeah, that's interesting because the very act of articulating suggests you're not just receiving information, but you're forming it, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a transaction. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I know you must be. I'm sure you are. Put you 100 percent focused on exactly what you need to do each step of the way to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, do you ever? think to yourself, boy, if this works out, I'm going to help some people, or I'm going to do some good in the world, or, or is that, do you have to tuck that away while you're in the throes of this? For me, at least, it's always in the back of my mind. Being a clinician, having dealt with patients firsthand, I mean, you never forget you know, holding the hand of a patient as they're expiring due to cancer or AIDS, or uh, that leaves an indelible mark. And so, uh, Sometimes I wish I could turn it off, to be honest with you, but it makes me a better person that I can't. So it's always at the back of my mind. That being said, you know, you could become paralyzed as well if you're kind of over-focused on, 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 on such things. So it's kind of my North Star. It's a North Star that I try to convey to uh, folks who might not have had that experience because I think uh, – so I'm happy that I don't my, – my job has never been to just build widgets. I'm not sure what it would be like to be a widget builder. You'd have to really have a sense of purpose around the merit of those widgets. It's very, very easy for me to motivate myself and to motivate other employees when you, know, you think our goal is to cure people of cancer. And we're talking about some pretty uh, bad actors here. So um, it, it is, as I said, our North Star. It's one that I remind people of. And what I tend to do especially is that if people are getting – um, if ever people are getting kind of off the rails, like they're kind of 
whatever, allowing interpersonal conflict, for instance, to kind of get in the way, I always remind them, you know, everybody, we really have a higher purpose here. So is this really, is it really worth it? I mean, patients are waiting for our wares. You know, patients are dying waiting for our wares. So if we lose a minute uh, in bringing uh, curative medicines to people uh, for, you know, for, for, for uh, reasons that, that are avoidable, that's really, really bad. So why don't we just not do that? And it's amazing how uh, resonant that is with people. And they go, yeah, yeah, you're right. In fact, we have a much bigger purpose here. We don't really, we can't really, we don't really have the luxury to do, to, you, know, you know, to putz around right now. One of the advantages, I believe, of being here in Connecticut is that you know the folks to talk to. You know who to pick up and call phone to. You worked with many of those people before. But well, first of all, let's start with that. Is is there a community of like-minded and connected bio CEO folks that you're just talking to every day or frequently? So absolutely, and it's. Uh, I love to answer this question because so the the uh, the biggest investor in Clio is a company based in New Haven called Biohaven. Biohaven was founded and uh, by former employees of, uh, that used to work for me at Bristol-Myers Squibb in Wallingford. Uh, and so they were in the neuroscience division, which, which Bristol-Myers Squibb decided to, uh, to divest. And then so they left you know, Big Pharma, and then they founded this company. In fact, one of the drugs that they're developing was a drug that had initially been developed by, by Bristol-Myers Squibb. But the whole reason I was made aware of Clio was because um, they had invested in in, in, in David's vision, David Spiegel's vision, uh, and they wanted to bring an experienced uh, person uh, to join the team with David and other people at Clio. And so because they knew me, you know, Vlad Chorich, who is the CEO of Biohaven, actually approached me at J.P. Morgan in January 2017 to, to begin the conversation. So it's just such a nice kind of uh, example of... Um, like-minded people who know each other, like to work each other, work with each other. Um, you know, they, they, the opportunity was shared. It made sense to me. I was very much wanting to stay in the state of Connecticut. I was um, fearing I might have to move to Boston or to San Francisco uh, to pursue my kind of entrepreneurial dreams. And I was thrilled, to be honest with you, to see the opportunity here. Uh, and then, of course, there's there's Biohaven. There's also John Houston, also formerly of of um, of uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, who's the CEO of uh, Arvinus that recently went public. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other uh, companies that I think are really, really promising. So um, there's a, a kind of a nice nucleus of, of, uh, of biotech CEOs, a lot of them having big pharma experience that are very dedicated to building out the biotech sector here. And it's actually, it's, it's really quite exciting. So we have created this kind of informal network of of CEOs and we're helping each other out. Uh, we're also helping um, scientists at Yale to uh, translate um, uh, very, very interesting scientific ideas into burgeoning companies. And that's not an easy task, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. Fleshing something out from an academic point of view uh, with the intent being to write publications or to get grant uh, funding is a very, very different kettle of fish than you, know, you actually translating the idea into something pragmatic that will help patients and thus will incite investors. So a lot of us are helping to advise um, such, uh, such academics, and, and uh, we're starting to see some new ideas actually turning into burgeoning companies, which is, which is awesome. Um, the, the, uh, in terms of access to capital, um, you know, money doesn't really know any geographic boundaries. And so it's not like anyone really cares. If, if you have a good idea, they don't care if the good idea happens to be 
uh, fleshed out in New Haven versus being fleshed out in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or in South San Francisco, or in Timbuktu, to be honest with you. Uh, a good idea is a good idea, and um, uh, smart money will follow will follow good ideas. And like I said, we, we have $34 million invested in us to date, uh, starting in 2015. Uh, successful Series B round with $21 million coming in in November of 2018. Um, and it, it just isn't an issue at all. And I would love to be part of a uh, continued um, evolution of uh, of New Haven as a well Connecticut as a biotech hub. There's absolutely no reason why what has been achieved in other places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, and South San Francisco couldn't be achieved couldn't be achieved here. And I think, and I think we're already with Biohaven and our Venus's success, and I think our success, our our evolving success. Uh, I think that uh, things are going really well. As you step back in that ring from the core of the CEOs of whom you know, which organizations can you plug into and plug out of on a regional basis? You know, let's, however you want to define it, New Haven, Connecticut, the region. Are there organizations that are helpful to tell, build that community? Yeah, so, um, so we have worked with uh, Connecticut Innovation, so they're, they're terrific. So, um, and I may have this, this wrong, but my understanding is that the state of Connecticut took pu- public money and basically imbued them with a certain amount of it, and then they, they basically take that money to help to seed companies uh, here in Connecticut. So they were one of the companies, or one of the groups that participated in the Series A financing round, which was really appreciated. They actually have also uh, provided us some very, very favorable loans to actually help to defray the cost of a renovation that we're currently doing. Uh, a representative from CT Innovation actually sits as an advisor or an observer rather on our board uh, and is very helpful so um, we have found that to be terrific and and I know that they're doing a lot of good for burgeoning companies here in in the state of Connecticut so that's a great example Uh, we're a Yale spin out the IP that we actually have was initially uh, generated at Yale at David Spiegel's lab so we have a very very close relationship with, with a variety of different people at Yale um, obviously, academics, including David, but also uh, you know their business development uh, people and, and other academics we have access to. Uh, we leverage the uh, the very very strong kind of clinical expertise of, of Yale oncologists in terms of helping to hone our our thinking regarding the uh, the, the uh, cancers that we're directing our discovery and development against. Uh, so that's been a terrific relationship as well. Uh, and then there is you know uh, Bio has a Connecticut division which we interface with. And then, of course, um, there is kind of a regional uh, group as well at Bio that we uh, that we also use use quite a bit. Like five minutes ago, you were saying, you know, I, I had that I wanted to do this thing. I really didn't want to have to go to Cambridge to do it. What was it about? What was the draw for Connecticut for you? So I moved here in 2005 with with my family, and so my daughter was, uh, I guess, three years old at the time that uh, that we moved here. And so she lived her whole life here. She's now 17. She's going to, to uh, high school here in, in, in Madison, Connecticut, which is where I live. Uh, and so, you know, it's a pretty, it's a, those are pretty big milestones in, in, in someone's life, you know, to see their daughter go through all of all of this stuff. So uh, I have just learned to, to love it here. I love the, I love being on the shore. I love the weather here. I'm a, I'm a Canadian. I used to live in Boston. I really like the seasons. Uh, so, so. It's a really nice place to live, but also I, I, I have a competitive streak in me, and I don't understand why Connecticut is not being more successful vis-a-vis some of the you know, uh, uh, nearby um, um, 
states. And so I really like the idea of us competing significantly more with New York and significantly more with Massachusetts and even with California. Uh, I, there's all of the substrate in this. You know, we have tons of smart people. We've got tons of entrepreneurial people. Uh, it's a beautiful place to live and to raise a family and, and to have fun with your life. So uh, I don't see any reason in the world why Connecticut cannot thrive as much as other, those other places. And it's, uh, I, it's kind of exciting to me to think that I might uh, you know, have a significant contribution to be made in that, in that space. Thanks, Doug, for speaking with me this morning. My pleasure. I opened the podcast with a quote from Doug about storytelling, how his role as head of a biopharma company is like the way a film director works. Each has a narrative to flesh out, and the storyteller brings together the team needed to articulate that vision. A core group drives the process, along with a carefully chosen ensemble of like-minded collaborators. As Doug says, if we need to talk to the world's smartest person in any given cancer, we can just pick up the phone and talk to that person. My experience in filmmaking and working with biopharma CEOs tells me Doug has this right. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.